The deadline for the Walk Awards for Effectiveness 2024 is approaching fast. You have until the 6th of February to enter your campaigns for our celebration of strategic brilliance and effective impact. There's 12 categories across five new regions. This is our biggest award show yet. And the great news is you just need to enter once for the chance to win it in your region and be in line for the Global Grand Prix, announced during Cannes Lion Week. So head straight to walk.com and submit your entry by that final deadline. That's the 6th of February and be in with a chance to win the Global Walk Grand Prix and truly claim your campaign as one of the most effective in the world. The Walk Awards 2024. Strategic brilliance, effective impact. It's the award show you've been waiting for. Hello and welcome to the Work Podcast. I'm Kathy Taylor, U.S. Commissioning Editor for Work, and today we are focusing on the ANA's just released programmatic supply chain media study. It's a blockbuster of a report, and I don't say that lightly. Uh, that really deserves further unpacking. And um, for all of those listening to this podcast, I urge you to actually go back and read the report because there is so much great detail in there about what has been considered to be a somewhat intractable problem that actually has some real solutions that are in the report. And we're really fortunate to have two of the report's authors with us today to uh, help us uh, dig through this great piece of, of research. Uh, one is Bill Duggan, Group EVP at the ANA, and the other is Tom Triscari, an advisor to this report and also a programmatic economist with Lemonade Projects, a consultancy looking for ways to make the programmatic ecosystem work better. So first, welcome to the podcast, Bill and Tom. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you, Kathy. So first, let's just walk through the research, you know, who was involved, um, what some of the roadblocks is, so we can kind of level set uh, where you, where and how you got the information that makes up this report. And, and Tom, maybe I'll just start even from a more basic angle. Why did we do this? Um, sure. And, and we've all seen the programmatic waterfalls. We actually have one in this report that we could talk about later. But some of those waterfalls show an advertiser spends a dollar between the advertiser and the publisher. There's different intermediaries taking nickels, dimes, and pennies, DSPs, SSPs, agencies, data providers. And maybe 50% of that dollar gets to the publisher. And then between the publisher and the consumer, there's other issues that eat away at the dollars, mostly bad stuff like brand safety issues or non-viewability or fraud and some of the waterfalls show that only 25 cents of that dollar results in an impression seen by the consumer. That stinks. Uh, we realize those intermediaries have mortgages to pay and kids to send to, to school and deserve to be paid, but just something didn't seem right that an advertiser spends a dollar and 75% of that dollar potentially um, is, goes into the supply chain. So I know this was three years in the making. So Tom, why don't you walk us through like putting all of this together to, to get to a place where you really feel you could get the kind of data to make the recommendations you made? Most of the previous studies uh, around cost waterfalls, whether it was ISBA, WFA, or past studies even by the ANA, they only really looked at the transaction costs of uh, DSP tech fees, SSP tech fees data. So from the advertiser to the publisher, and what this thing 
this report did was we said, well, we want to go really deep into log data. That was one key differentiating factor. Um, and with that, go beyond the, what the publisher ended up getting and what happened after these ads were bought with respect to ad quality, because that's where you're going to get a large cost or waste uh, number um, if, the, if the impressions are no good. So that's really how it all started. And then there was the RFP. Um, Bill can speak a little bit to that. That went out. Lots of uh, we went through a lot of um, respondents and whittled it down and ended up with the core group that ended up in the first look report. And then from there, um, that was uh, that was published in June of this last year at Cannes. And then we have this uh, more recent version, which is the completed version. Yeah. And just building on Tom's mm -hmm. comments, if if I pulled people and said, is true or false, is programmatic complex? True. 100 percent true. True or false, is programmatic murky? Yeah. You know, I think 90 uh, percent plus would say, you know, it's murky. Is it non-transparent? Yes, absolutely. Uh, one of my favorite ANA lines in my career here is the following. Mm -hmm. Where there's mystery, there's margin. There's mystery and programmatic. Um, without a doubt. So people are making a, a margin, you know, maybe a, a bigger margin than they should be making. And again, that was a fundamental reason we did this, this work. You know, to build a point, just to bring out an analogy, I mean, imagine you walked up to Costco or mm -hmm. a Walmart or, you know, any big box store, Home Depot, and on the sign out front before you walked in, it said, it's very complex in here. It's going to get murky and it's not transparent. Nobody would go in that store. But yet in this store, in the programmatic store, everybody rushes in. I know. I mean, one thing I came away with, and it's super simplistic, right, is that a lot of the recommendations kind of wrote, revolve around the idea that less is more. Strip away. Get get to the heart of uh, what your DSP is doing. You know, get to the heart of of where where these impressions really are going. Yeah. Get get to the heart. Get to the heart of being an advertiser, not a spender of media budgets, because there's a difference between spending media and doing advertising. It doesn't seem like there's much advertising going on. Here. There's a lot of media spending. I'm not so sure about the advertising part. Go ahead, Bill. I, I think a lot of marketers are intimidated with programmatic. They don't yeah. want they don't want to ask quote unquote stupid questions, so they don't ask questions. Um, and this report is meant to encourage a, a better dialogue. So let's talk a minute about kind of the top line findings. And you talked about um, how little of the money actually makes makes it into an impression that a consumer sees. Uh, I'll start with our waterfall because I already quoted um, kind of anonymous waterfall. We, we showed that um, 36 percent, 36 cents on the dollar results in an impression seen by the consumer. So there were transaction costs, about 29% transaction costs. So that's DSP, SSP. Um, and then like the biggest crime, loss of media productivity costs, non-viewable impressions, invalid traffic, um, impressions that can't be measured, MFAs were 35%. But what we did not um, count because we didn't have the information were ad agency fees and also brand safety. So, um, but just to clarify, this is just dealing with the open web, Correct. Uh, which is not to say that the walled gardens are perfect either. <laughs> so um, what uh, jumps out at you, Tom, in terms of kind of overall findings? Yeah, I think the first thing is I, it's something that I've discussed in many, uh, many occasions on the transaction costs, which is, you know, the money from the advertiser to the publisher, those are pay to play, meaning 
These are invoices you're going to get. So if you want to play in programmatic, you have to have these service fees because you need these technologies to do it. So those are things you're going to have to pay for. Can you minimize those? Yes. Can you eliminate them? No. After that, when we get from the publisher to ads to the consumer that would be impactful and actually function and be called advertising, that's where you don't minimize. You want to eliminate all of those wasteful areas and they can be eliminated uh, by making better decisions. And I think also it's important to reiterate Bill's point that agency fees were not included in this. So those could be anywhere, depending on how the agency is set up, it could be a 5% fee or it could be it, there could be other fees in there. So that's five, 10% maybe. Um, so that 36 uh, cents on the dollar is, is likely lower. I think the other main thing that I always point out, some people don't like this, but I think it's important. Um, you see that in the cost waterfall that there is this IVT component, which is low, which is the post bid reporting number. Mm-hmm. I'm always asking, what is the accuracy of that number? I I don't see when you talk to other people in the space, people who really know what's going on, there is some skepticism around how good uh, those filtering technologies are working. Um, So I think it's important to ask the question, are you 99% sure that it's, you know, 0.78% or are you 10% sure? Because if if it's only a 10% probability that it's accurate, then you're looking at another wasteful bucket that goes on reported in this. That's not something, that's not the type of data that we had in this report, but it's something for advertisers to take up on their own to investigate if they want to. Yeah. And I mean, one thing that jumps out about this report is there's a lot of things that for various reasons you can't, you know, kind of get to the next layer in terms of of understanding. But even if all of this was everything you knew and it was, um, you could take every piece of data completely at face value, it's still a really bad problem. <laughs> so, and, and and I'm going to um, volunteer a number from the report: forty-four thousand. So the average campaign was on forty-four thousand websites. Forty-four thousand. Can you think about your own personal web surfing behavior? How many websites were you on yesterday? Maybe a dozen or so. So once upon a time. When programmatic started, it was all about follow the audience. Context, you know, doesn't matter. I don't think that's true anymore because what we did find is that the long tail of the web had a hundred percent higher IVT than the top five hundred websites. So mm-hmm. you know, twice as bad fraud. It was also twelve percent less viewable. You know, certainly some of those sites can make sense, but as you said when you set this up, part of our recommendation. Is, is to scale back. Why would you need 44,000 websites? But programmatic, right. at least in the early days, said that the context doesn't matter. It's all about the audience. But I don't believe that to be the case anymore. Yeah. And to Bill's point, you know, I always remind people that um, in the mid early 80s, George Lois, the great creative, um, he turned Tommy Hilfiger into a billionaire overnight with one billboard in Times Square, one right. billboard with great copy. And that was it. And there was no programmatic. There was no nothing. That's how you use advertising to build a business. One thing is using these programmatic tools for advertising purposes. Another thing is using them for media spending. And if you're going to use them for advertising purposes, they can be very good tools. The audience targeting can make sense up to a certain limit, up to diminishing returns and being you know, very aware of how these levers work when you pull one against the other. In other words, you have to have somebody in the control tower at the brand just like a control tower in mm-hmm. an airport, you know, you've got to have a radar screen. You got to know where the airplanes are landing, 
taking off? Are they in trouble? Are they in turbulence? You have to know things. And I, it's not just an easy button set and forget because that, that holy grail sales pitch probably is not great for advertising. It's great for everyone else. Um, the easy button pitch. Well, it's so fascinating because you just have to take a moment when you're reading this and go, why have we let this situation um, persist? Because in some ways the report isn't shocking, but what's shocking is, is when you put all the detail around it uh, and start to put the numbers around it, you just really, you know, kind of le- leave with, well, it's good. There's some solutions here, which we'll get into in a minute, yeah. but, but how did we get here in the fir- first place and why are brands sort of willing almost to waste so much money. I, I, I think Tom's comment about there needs to be a control tower at the brand is spot on. You know, we talk a lot in the report about information asymmetry, meaning that the sellers of programmatic know a lot more about it than the buyers of programmatic. And advertisers need to give a crap. They, they need to staff up internally um, and, and ask the questions and to have oversight. And that was one of the fundamental recommendations is that every advertiser, I think every advertiser spending 50 million or more needs to have a dedicated person that all he or she does is media. It can't just be the CMO where that's part of their remit. Media is just way too fragmented and complicated um, that there needs to be someone dedicated on on the client side. With all due respect to agencies, you know, you could still have an agency yeah. partner, but it's the client's money and you need to safeguard it. Yeah, look, I mean, to that point about agencies, it's really, it's a very fair point. I mean, people like to beat up, but I don't think that's very fair. In fact, um, you know, probably a friend of work, and I know it's a friend of ours, you know, Brian Weezer, we were just having a back yeah. and forth earlier this week. And, you know, my comment to him was, it's interesting that, um, you know, why is it that all these research reports, why aren't, you know, a single one of them ever produced by an agency? And the answer is very simple. It's because there's no incentive. If you're being told, hey, go buy $2 cheap reach inventory and show me results from that, then the agency is going to go do what it's going to go need to do to go make that media spend, uh, to, to go execute that media spend. That's what they're in charge of doing. It's what they've been told to do. And of course, over the last 20 years, they've gotten, you know, they've gotten beat up on fees. So what incentive do they have to even provide, even if they provide good advice back, say, hey, you know, we really don't recommend this strategy because maybe the quality isn't the best. If the client's not going to listen, if this is what procurement wants, then that's what's going, you know, that's what's going to happen. But I think to your question around how do we kind of get here? I've been thinking about this in a variety of angles. One is Mm -hmm. uh, an angle of what is trust. So trust effectively is confidence in the intent of a counterparty. So if you have confidence or a belief in that counterparty, meaning the ecosystem, uh, all these middle players, including uh, agencies, DSPs, SSPs, then you're kind of acquiescing and you're handing control over to them. And then then there's a lot of money in place. So they're going to do what they need to do because they have shareholders too. I think the other angle from, from sort of uh, behavioral economics or game theory really would be that we've ended up because of this belief system and you end up getting trapped in it. And you're like, wait a minute, I believe that maybe I shouldn't have all these to say the last decade. Um, and you have a lot of cumulative uh, programmatic media spend that's happened over that 10 year period. You end up in a prisoner's dilemma where basically you have the ecosystem, the ad tech ecosystem uh, is, 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 is one of the culprits and the advertisers, the other culprit in this game theory setup. And basically you end up in a situation where um, both are better off if they don't admit failure. 
And so that's, right. that's a problem. And so they end up in this escalated commitment, which is a further ex extension of the game um, and behavioral economics from that point of view. And you just end up staying where you are and you're in prison and you're kind of get warm and happy there and you're, and, you're, and you're fine. I think that's part of why a lot of this hasn't changed despite these industry, you know, these industry research reports that are from the ANA and others over the years. Well, it also occurred to me that, for instance, hiring a chief media officer which you recommend uh, or some something like that is a cost and having all these having people involved in in vetting the contracts to the level of detail that it requires is a cost and and you know again getting the log level data and analyzing that they're they're all they're all costs and to a certain extent it's kind of like well either I I spend the money this way in the way I've always spent it and some of it's wasted or I put all this investment in and uncover some things that are really uncomfortable and I'd rather not do that on some level is that accurate I I would argue it's an investment you know so how much would a chief media officer um costs. I'm just vamping 200 to 400,000 as an annual salary, just, you know, as, as right. a stake in the ground ballpark. Could that person save many multiples of that investment? I would say without a doubt. Um, and also protect the advertiser from some bad stuff that could happen like, like fraud and brand safety issues. So I would definitely advocate it as an investment for sure. Yeah. Let's um, talk a bit about the recommendations that you make. And it is difficult to go through all of them. There is a great list of 15 questions um, uh, to uh, help advertisers, you know, ask the right questions. Uh, again, getting to your point, Bill, about people not knowing which questions to ask. Well, they're in the report. <laughs> so, but let's talk sort of about kind of the categories that they, they fall into with, with some overlap. So I hope I mention all of them here, but what are the recommendations around, around data? Um, you obviously talk a ton about log level data and the importance of that, and also getting beyond sort of this information asymmetry. Yeah. I'll, Bill, I'll just take a stab at this. So I think log level data is a choice. You have it, it's available. And because it's available, you have to ask for it and you can get it. Clearly, we've gotten it for 21 advertisers. There's other advertisers that I think you saw in the in the notes in the run-up to this, that there were some brands that didn't participate in, in this study. They have log data too. They're just doing it on their own. And so that's really important. But I think the key thing that most people don't understand about log data is that data, the whole purpose of any data set is to answer a question. Right. So you think mm -hmm. about it, you know, data, turn it into information, get an insight, make a decision off of that because you've learned, you've got wise, you got more knowledge. And so you can make a better decision. And going back to the first look report, you know, it was a very simple data join. So we have all this log data. We have all the URLs that this, these impressions are running on. And well, let's just ask the question. I wonder how much of this is running on MFA, for example. Well, let's go get another separate independent data set from Deep Sea, for example, with 4,500 known MFA sites that they track at the time. Mm -hmm. It's a very simple data join. I mean, you could do this in Excel. It's not that, or a basic SQL query. And we did that, it happened very quickly because it's a simple data join and you get a huge impact from that. You get information. Yeah. And, you know, as Bill will maybe talk about several of the ANA members, many of them didn't know what an MFA was, now they do, that's important. 
There's been an impact on the MFA market because of this. So that's great, making people aware. But it's the point of that log data on its own. It's log data joined with other data that makes it more valuable. And I think that's how you get a privileged advantage as a marketer to make decisions that maybe your competitors aren't making. Um, you are in a competitive environment in markets and in programmatic auctions. So I think it's good to be smart with that and to understand the purpose of data. And log data is just one source of many. Yeah, I just wanted to talk about what an MFA site is. Um, hopefully most of our audience knows that, but it's a you know made for advertising site. I think when you're on one, you know it. <laughs> We've all been been on sites that seem to serve no other purpose, and it also um, makes up a huge amount of uh, sort of the non-quality inventory that that advertisers buy. I'll tell you how we define it in the report. It says MFA sites typically use sensational headlines, clickbait, and provocative content to attract visitors and generate page views, which in turn generate ad revenue for the site owner. MFA sites also feature low quality content and may use tactics such as pop-up ads, audio, play videos, or intrusive ads to maximize ad revenue. So we, we um, after the first look report was issued in June, this, this was the big headline. I, I quite honestly didn't think much about MFA sites prior to this report and I compliment Tom and the project team for bringing this insight. It's like, holy crap, 15% of spend, 21% of impressions are on MFA sites. One of the advertisers, one of the 21 advertisers had 40% of their spend. So that was a big wake, wake up call. And you know, one of the things that we did between the first look report and the complete report, because there were many questions about MFAs is that we partnered with the four A's, um, ISBA and WFA, to um, come up with a agreed upon definition of what MFA cites. And we cited five characteristics, including high ad to content ratio and rapidly auto refreshing ad placements. But this was absolutely not on the radar screen of many ANA members until the report came out. And, and sadly, you know, I also question, we talked about the role of agencies. Why didn't agencies bring this up? I, I just, and, and maybe because um, A&A members, client-side marketers are pounding on agencies for cheap CPMs, and this is a way to get cheap CPMs, but still, it, it was just amazing to me that this concept's been around for a while, but nobody really talked about it until the report came out. Yeah, and there is a benefit to it. I mean, there's an interesting benefit from political optical uh, optics. Um, so, into that point about, about agencies and what we talked about earlier. So if 20% of your media budget is going to open web programmatic, which generally it's 10 to 15%, um, particularly for big spenders, right? Mm -hmm. uh, let's say it's 20%, you're buying 20% of your media at you know a $2 CPM. And then you've got your other premium stuff, your CTV, your good CTV, your TV, your radio, whatever it might be. And these are much higher billboards, much higher CPMs. So that 20% is averaging down the overall average so that can be reported back to procurement that they hit some Bit synthetic target that makes no sense whatsoever. Generally, that's my point of view. Um, and that's why if agencies get mandated to say, look, take this slug of money and go buy this. And I don't want, I'm going to, I want an average of $2 CPM. That's the whole point. A demand curve has to be described, right? So this is the mm -hmm. demand for cheap reach. The demand curve for, for cheap reach or programmatic inventory is not the same demand curve for TV inventory. Those are different demand curves. But when in a market there is demand, there will be somebody on the other side of the trade 
who creates supply for you. It's that simple. In this world we're talking about, it's literally instantaneous. You can add supply overnight in a couple hours, in a couple minutes. And that's what keeps those prices low as more supply comes on because more demand, because, because there's more demand. And that's what we end up with. And I think agencies are just kind of stuck in the middle of this whole thing um, because that's what, again, they've been asked to do. Well, well, one of the recommendations uh, that was really great was talking about building inclusion lists, right, which helps get around this problem and other ones rather than exclusion lists, which I feel like have gotten most of the emphasis over the last few years. And, you know, I would love for you to just um, briefly unpack that because it is so central to this whole thing. Yeah, there's pushback on that because now we're in a constrained environment where we just talked about. So I want to run an exclusion list because it's so much easier to spend the budget to basically find this cheap reach supply. If now you want me to get cheap reach and you want to run it on an inclusion list, well, all of a sudden there's scarcity of supply. All of a sudden things just got more difficult. And that's why there's a lot of folks in the ecosystem who, who will talk about the benefits and virtues of an inclusion list, but yet in reality, they don't practice what they preach. They want to try to find ways to continue with exclusion lists because it makes life easier than, than more difficult. And again, when you're beating up agencies on fees and on FTE costs, um, you know, going the extra mile is not, is not, is not in the budget. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but meanwhile, I think the, the part of the point that is made in the report about the exclusion list is that you're really ultimately playing whack-a-mole, right? Because there's always going to be a new site to exclude. Especially now with AI, for sure. Yeah. So um, sort of went on a tangent there. But again, what are some of the other recommendations around around data that you feel are really important for marketers to to really take the reins of? Any type of data that can truly inform measurement of what you're getting, going back to Bill's comment earlier, don't think of it as an expense, think of it as an investment, right? Any type of data that will inform a more accurate measurement will tell the truth on its own if it's being done without bias, right? Success bias and those types of things, uh, which are prevalent in the industry, right? So I think if that's the case, then you kind of like don't really worry about anything because everything is going to look good. Um, but for those purists out there, uh, any type of data that can better inform measurement and those types of companies that work on measurement, particularly in a cookie-less world, um, which there's plenty of them, that's, I think, the area to focus on because then you can really – you can determine on your own whether or not this type of amount of budget that you're spending on the open web is worth it or not. And then you can calibrate going forward attention metrics and a data stream on attention metrics – on top of log data and other types of data would be very valuable for that same purpose. So there's lots of state-of-the-art things that are out there that are ready to go. And it's just a matter of using them to want to do advertising. So Kathy, I'd like to add on to that. So there's a paragraph in the report I'm going to read. It says, knowledge is power. With programmatic media, data drives knowledge and is the enabler that allows marketers to improve the efficiency and effectiveness of their campaigns. Access to data, pulling insights from data, and then acting on those insights provides a pathway for marketers to optimize their programmatic media investments. So we've talked about a couple of things already. Number of websites, that, that's a piece mm -hmm. of data every, every advertiser should have, and you could pull that from your DSP report. 
uh, made for advertising. That's a piece of data every advertiser should have. One we haven't talked about, but I will now, is um, SSP optimization strategy. So how many advertisers have thought about that? I thought that was a brilliant insight um, where the average um, number of SSPs used by the 21 study participants, I think was 19 with a high of, of 50. And the insight was, well, when you have that many, you're competing against yourself. The analogy was in the old days of search, where there would be two divisions from the same company bidding on the same keyword, not knowing it, and driving up costs. If you have too many SSPs, you're competing against yourself and driving up costs. And by the way, that's bad for the environment as well. There's sustainability sustainability issues. So one piece of data or another piece Mm -hmm. of data is know how many SSPs are being used for your campaign and question as to whether that's the right number or not. The guideline that we gave in the study is between five and seven. Yeah. Well, I mean, it also begs the question, how how did somebody end up with 50 SSPs? Was it a bunch of mergers? By not looking. Yeah, Yeah. by not looking. Absolutely. (laughs) By not knowing, not asking, not knowing what to ask. And Kathy, you brought it up earlier, you know, the report offers all of these um, questions that you can ask, but that's great that you can ask the question, but can you interpret the answer that you're going to get back, right? Because you might not get back the truth. You might not, you might get back a story. You might not get back the whole truth. So how good are you at interpreting and interrogating, you know, to uh, get to what you want to get to, which is better information to make, you know, better decisions. And with the, with the comment uh, that Bill made, you know, on, um, you know, the uh, supply path, a lot of SSPs, all the MFA inventory. I mean, it comes across with all those, the surveys you did in that, how often the advertisers don't have a clue what's going on. Is it more important to kind of look good than be good, right? You, ha- I think you have to try to do both. You know, you have to try to, um, you should, what you should really be doing is you should be good. And by being good, you look good. Um, it's not often the way things work out, but it's the way of the world. <laughs> so um, there are also a lot of recommendations around um, contracts. And I know people think of contracts as being really boring, but it's really necessary to kind of bring a lot of things, including transparency in when you're dealing with contracts. So could you go into that a little bit? So one of the insights was the media agency contract. So um, when ANA did our infamous transparency work, seven or eight years ago, that was the fundamental finding. Advertisers had crappy contracts. And as a result, agencies were allowed to take rebates and advertisers needed to update their contracts. With um, the media agency environment changing so rapidly, it's really important that advertisers update their contracts on a regular basis. We work with Reed Smith, our outside legal counsel. They have done a terrific job um, in just earlier this year, uh, updated their media agency contract. It's at the vanity link, ANA.net slash transparency. If you haven't updated your contracts, advertisers in a year or two, please look at that. Um, and then it, and then there's a section about having direct contracts with the supply chain intermediaries, because that way you ensure that you can get the data that you want. Um, Tom alluded to it earlier that I think there were 67 advertisers that wanted to participate in this study. Only 21 did because the others couldn't get access to their data. So please, Tom, build on what I said. Yeah, uh, I've been doing contract work for a long time. And um, it's important, again, though, to be able to interpret what's in the contract. So, for example, 
um, a client may have a direct contract with a DSP, but because it's not interpreted and not summarized, particularly a couple clauses that are in there that are very important, not even the lawyers will be able to see it because this is not their world. And so you have these, you have to have some level of sophistication around programmatic to know what connects to one, what connects to what, and what the consequences could be. And just understanding what some of those things are in there is really important um, or else basically the counterparty has a legal right to do whatever they're doing and there's nothing you can do about it because you signed the contract because you didn't understand what you were signing but needless to say having taking the steps of direct contracts with primarily i mean dsp most advertisers most the majority have a contract with their ad verification vendor that's a direct contract and more and more are having direct contracts with dsps i think that's the key one to have mm -hmm. and then going downstream from there but at least that sets a precedent it sets sort of a um, a behavioral situation where you know you're more astute you're you're you're, you're leaning in a lot more than before Thanks. Well, I'm just looking at the list of questions um, to ask, which is on page 103, everybody, of the report. And one is just the really, to me, interesting find, finding that the private marketplace doesn't perform in some sort of premium way for the most part compared to the open marketplace. And like yet advertisers are paying more for it. That, that was really pretty fascinating. I think for sure that was one of the surprises um, in the report. W one would assume, bad word, assume that when I buy a private marketplace, it should be um, better quality. But what we saw was that you know many of the private marketplaces um, had fraud, you know, higher levels of fraud, twice the CPM. So one of the recommendations was to make sure you look at those private marketplace deals harder, and you might want to consider increasing what you spend on open marketplace and decreasing what you spend on private marketplace. Yeah, private marketplace deals are actually really brilliant. There's the history behind that goes back to 217, around 217, when everything was really open web, open marketplace before that. But then there were all these issues that were coming out, including the ANA's report at the time in 217 and others around viewability, around ad quality in general. And then so all of a sudden there was this wonderful idea of or what I call the next idea, um, because there's a new situation, which is the PMP. And the PMP, man, that sounds so good, except in my view and what I've seen in general, and this goes back to even before this A&A report, is a P private marketplace deal is just tranching. So what you do is you have a little bit of quality in there, you throw a lot of junk in, but the overall rating of the package looks great because it sounds good and everybody buys it and it keeps the machinery moving. Everyone always has to remember, Programmatic, the marketplace, the companies that are involved in this, the technology companies, which most of them are publicly traded now, this is a volume game. This is a volume maximization game. It's all about moving the volume that's going through these systems. And a part of that has to be packaged up. If, that, if there was something that was gonna stall that volume growth, then what do you do? Well, the PMP sounds great. It's really the same inventory at the end of the day. Um, and as we found in the study and others will find if they really dig into it, that it doesn't sound so private when there's, you know, thousands and thousands of sites of dubious quality inside these so-called private marketplace deals. But it sounds wonderful. In fact, it's really just like it's kind of like ad tech playing a trick on the very brands that are their clients because it's the brands that do branding work because the brand commands a premium than the generic product. 
right? So anyhow, there's a lot to unpack still there, but I think there's at least we're showing through log data and other mechanisms that you can really easily take a look at what's inside these and inspect them and, and then ask questions and hopefully make changes from there. Thanks. So um, I think we're ready for the lightning round. So, okay, <laughs> Bill, you get to go first. It, what would your first piece of advice be for a brand in starting to untangle all this on its behalf? Have the right internal staffing. Oh yeah, no, definitely. I would pause all programmatic spend and see what happens and see if there's any effect whatsoever in my advertising world. And then I would start to light it up one step at a time after a 90 day pause or so. Thanks both of you for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Go read the report, people. Uh, if nothing else, go to page 103 and start asking those questions. Kathy, the vanity URL is simple, ana.net slash programmatic. That's where you find the report. It's, it's available free, member or not. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Bill and Tom. It's great to hear you unpack the report. Thank you all for listening. The Work Podcast is available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. So please subscribe if you don't already. Thank you.